Welcome to another episode of the Leaders and Founders podcast. My name is Adam Kinder, one of the co-founders at Gathered and Found, the leading uh, UK and European talent partner. Um, today, I'm really excited to be joined by Kelly Waters. Um, so I think a lot of people will, will know Kelly within the agile and product development space in the UK and Europe. Um, I've known Kelly for, for quite a long time now, actually. He's a great guy. He's long been a thought leader in the agile and, uh, and UK product development space. Um, He's held some great positions as well, um, being a transformation practice lead at ThoughtWorks in Sydney, Australia, before moving into a number of different strategic uh, engineering positions, director of engineering, director of technology, uh, great places like Just Eat, The Guardian, um, and Kelly founded 101 Ways uh, around seven, seven and a half years ago now. Um, they really specialize in helping some of the best tech companies in the world to transform their product development teams, helping them shift to new ways of working, whether it's adopting DevOps mindsets, microservices, and just helping overall with their delivery and putting their, their teams in place. Um, as I said, he's a great guy. He's a very humble guy. Um, I don't think he'll, uh, he'll mind me saying that, but he's, uh, he's long been uh, very prominent in, in this space. Um, he, he had a great blog, I think, which really helped with, uh, I guess, some of his publicity in, in the tech scene when, when they set 100 and ways up. And since starting the business, they've gone on to help some, some great businesses, companies like Just Eat, Elsevier, The Guardian, Grays, Tesco, Love Holidays, Zoopla, Design, like the list really does go on. They're, they're a great business. Um, so yeah, in this episode, Kelly gives us a really good overview of how 101 ways, I guess, have been affected by the market. Um, it's definitely been a little bit of a slowdown from their side, but fortunately, they, they haven't actually lost any clients. It's been a little bit slower, I guess, as the same with, with all consulting businesses. Um, but he's got some, some great words of wisdom for, for people looking to, to set up their own business, some of the early problems that you have, how to adapt, how to grow your teams. And uh, I think he gives us a really good, honest overview of, uh, of this story from, from 101 Ways and, and some of the challenges that, that new founders uh, encounter in, in their first, first year or so. Um, so yeah, he's a great guy and uh, I'll pass it straight over to Kelly. So thanks for, uh, for coming on. Kelly, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us on the Ladies and Founders podcast. How, how are things your side? Yeah, not bad, thanks. Good. All considered. Yeah, exactly. I know, I know we, we spoke a couple of times, I guess, once really at the start of lockdown when uh, things are really kind of getting crazy and obviously so much has happened in the last few months. Um, but no, I, I think, as I kind of mentioned in, in the intro as well, I've obviously known you for a long time, you know, in terms of your history, your background, you know, you've, you've always been a thought leader in, in your space for tech and agile. So yeah, I'm really, really keen to just kind of pick your brains a bit, I guess, and just hear a bit more about your story and obviously one-on-one ways. So yeah, I guess just for, for people kind of tuning in, I think most people in tech will know of you, in, in my opinion, um, you know, through the kind of events and the work that you guys do. But yeah, could you just give us a bit of an intro, I guess, just a bit of a snapshot of, of Kelly Waters, that'd be great. Yeah, of course. I'm pretty sure people won't have heard of me. Yeah, I'm sure you're wrong there. I'm, I'm sure you're being <laughs> humble. You're being very humble, um, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, yeah, very briefly, just a very short version, then we can get into it a bit more as you want. But um, I started in tech as a trainee programmer 35 years ago, so my background is technical. Um, a huge, uh, enormous amount of time ago. It's incredible just how much change there has been, but also sometimes how things are still similar. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I started as a techie. I kind of worked up through my career into roles like tech lead, project manager, into sort of larger 
scale program management and ultimately into a CTO role. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing sort of CTO technology director type roles for the last um, goodness knows how many years <laughs> already. Um, <laughs> and you know what I always used to find was one of the biggest challenges for me in the director of technology type of position was when I had budget for big projects and I wanted to scale up, I had pressure on me to deliver more. I had all the normal business as usual going on and really found that challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of being happy that I had this new budget to spend, I found myself, you know, it was a headache. Yeah, and um, finding good partners to work with, um, ramping up staff in, internally using permanent recruitment is quite slow. So we um, found this was just a recurring problem. And, and that was really what started 101 Ways. The idea was, why don't we just take that problem off of the plate of a technology leader. Let's help them solve some challenging problems, get their digital products built, and help them scale up their tech organization um, quickly using contractors, but all managed for them. So the you know the whole recruitment selection, onboarding, get the team working well, solve any problems, and support the, the engagement throughout the whole life. So that was the problem we set out to solve. Um, that uh, proved to be pretty popular, I guess, that you could say. Uh, first couple of years, we saw phenomenal growth. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's evolved a bit from there. I think we, we set out with that idea, but we find ourselves working a lot on transformation, uh, sometimes on delivery, usually a combination of the two, um, and across all sorts of different projects, you know, much more diverse range of projects than maybe we would have had in mind at the beginning. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah so we're four, we're four years into that growth now. Um, and... Uh, looking forward to see how the the next 12 months goes, given that you know, obviously we're in a very, very challenging time. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, um, as we kind of mentioned just, just briefly before, I mean, so many companies have had to adapt. Um, you know, I think a lot of companies are still going to experience some big challenges, and there's probably going to be some more pain, of course, to come. Um, you know, it's, we're in a, a big sort of economic crisis, I guess, right? So I think, you know, from a lot of the conversations we're having, you know, the, the real kind of leaders who are trying to be innovative, who have been quite quick to adapt and have been quite open, I guess, with how they set their teams up, the sort of products they're going to be focusing on. I think a lot of people are really honing down on, you know, what we're good at, you know, how are we going to help take this to the next level? How are we going to get through this, I guess? Um, so look, I'm, I'm really keen to definitely go back. I mean, obviously starting, uh, you know, 35 years ago as, as, you know, your first kind of trainee techie role. Um, I'm keen to see what sort of, uh, I guess, examples and cross-references you see now, I guess, in the market, because obviously technologies change, you know, languages change or develop, for example. But, um, I mean, just to, to give us a bit of a snapshot, I mean, when you started to, to really think seriously, I guess that lockdown was going to come into place. I mean, how, w- w- what did you do? You know, was it a, a series of like Cobra meetings, I guess, in 101 ways, looking at how you're going to adapt? Um, what, what did that look like for you? And how has that developed over the last few months? Well, I think at first, I mean, the first thing to say, we're in a very fortunate position compared to many businesses because we can work from home, Mm -hmm. we can work remotely, and we are able to continue delivering our services to our clients. And and therefore, um, you know, we're not in the same boat as a lot of businesses that are maybe in hospitality or travel or or other areas where their revenue completely stopped overnight. And I can't even imagine Mm -hmm. how you handle that. That's that's incredible. that so many businesses will be under and obviously many of them won't survive that. So we're, we're in a fortunate position where, um, first and foremost, we're looking at what impact does it have on our clients? Mm. Uh, because 
whilst we can still deliver our services remotely and we can still um, we're quite experienced at remote working and uh, you know managing with zoom meetings and hangouts and yeah. uh, virtual workshops and things like this so so that side of it wasn't the worry for us the worry for us was how does it affect our clients uh, firstly are our clients going to be okay does that have an impact in turn on our own services and um and i guess we're fortunate we didn't actually lose any clients as a result of the pandemic um, however what we are seeing is they are all um, reducing in numbers they are all uh, suffering from um, revenue decrease or mm. or maybe even just you know demands drying up altogether in some uh, some clients so we're generally seeing clients that want to reduce in numbers they want to um, make very very cost conscious decisions at the current time because their revenue is not certain or has been impacted sure. um, so that has definitely changed things and it's changed the amount of new work coming in the front door if you like it's changed the pipeline it really is not a lot of uh, there are not a lot of companies starting new projects right now because they're distracted by either distracted or loss of revenue by this terrible pandemic so um, so I think for consulting businesses like us and for uh, many you know many of them we'll see the impact maybe further down the line we'll see the impact in three to six months or more when projects are finishing projects that people have continued with and seen through and delivered are finishing but the new work to replace that to re replace those projects is maybe not there um, and so I think consultancies will suffer more in the second half of the year than uh, during the pandemic itself yeah no for sure and it, it's, it's obviously great to hear that you, that you didn't lose clients definitely and I think it's um from my experience I guess of, of 101 ways and, and knowing you guys um and I guess just kind of going back to, to the beginning I remember when uh, I sort of first started hearing about you guys and then within that sort of tech space you know software development product leadership etc um from my you know kind of view of things I guess and I've, I've done some work for, for 101 ways over the years as well um the, the name was just fantastic and I think I mean, I'm keen to see how you kind of put, put it together, I suppose, because I know you've obviously worked at um, you know, businesses similar in the past, so companies like ThoughtWorks, for example, then you have had a number of different strategic uh, sort of leadership roles with, with some great tech companies as well. Um, but it seemed like 101 Ways was kind of always there, if that makes sense, you know, I think, which is good, right? You know, you kind of had that brand of, oh yeah, 101 Ways, even though you're a fairly new company, it felt like you'd probably been around for a lot longer, I guess, than, than you had, which I think definitely speaks volumes for, for the work you do and, and the reputation. But um, where, where did it kind of come from? Was it literally sort of, you know, one day of work, yeah. you know, right, I'm going to do this? Or? <laughs> I'm not sure everyone would agree that it's a great name. Uh, for a start, yeah. it's very hard to say. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I think uh, originally, um, I, well, I like alliterations. The blog before 101 Ways was called All About Agile, and I sort of like the little play on words with the, an alliteration. But the idea of 101 Ways was there's 101 ways to do anything. Mm -hmm. um, to find the best way, often you need expert help, or, or there's not really one right way. The, the patchwork of different techniques that you might use in order to solve a problem or deliver a project are all probably coming from completely different methodologies and it requires huge experience and expertise to do that well it, rather than just do one textbook approach which may not suit the circumstances and I am a great believer that the context changes everything and so um, chances are there's not one methodology that will work perfectly for every team in every company in every industry in every situation and so the name really came back from this um, philosophy of there being a hundred one ways to do anything and 
um, and not being uh, rigid and stuck to a one sort of textbook approach. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of a tongue twister, which uh, we learned early on didn't really help us because uh, <laughs> I think half the students internally can't say it properly either. I suppose it's it, it's quite different though to, to what is around, you know. And I think um, even when we were coming up with the name of, of Gather and Found, in my opinion, it's one of the hardest things because you kind of have to try and please a few people. You have to get something which is maybe slightly sort of you. You can't please everyone, can you? And the, the other thing is almost every name uh, in humankind has already been used for something. Yeah. <laughs> and the, when you find a name that kind of works for what you want to do, the domain name's available, the company name's available, um, it, it makes a little bit of sense, but you know, isn't too, I don't know, wacky maybe, I don't know. And, uh, to find one that hasn't been used is incredibly difficult now, hence why so many companies have been born with random words that you know, don't mean anything. Exactly. So I was quite pleased to find a name that actually had some meaning for us. Yeah, of course. You, you weren't just going sort of numerically like 98 ways, 98 ways. <laughs> No, it, it tends to sit alphabetically, it sits above everything else in the alphabet. So that's always good. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, and I mean, when you started to, to put it together, obviously you'd worked in this sort of realm before where you'd done consulting work, obviously having those leadership positions, you knew where the pains and the challenges were. How, how did you, what, I guess, what was your kind of, you know, selling point? Because obviously there are a lot of consultancies, you know, in, in the UK, especially, you know, worldwide. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, genuinely speaking, I mean, I've, I've worked with a few over the years. I think 101 Ways within, within the tech scene has, has a fantastic name and reputation, which again is a credit to, to the work and the people, of course, who, who work yeah. for you. Yeah. What was, the, um, what was the kind of starting point? You know, what was your kind of go to market? Did you have, you know, did you have your slide deck or, did, you know, how did you kind of approach, I guess, starting with this? It was very casual. <laughs> I, I would like to say it was meticulously planned. You know, we, we made an amazing business plan and everything was, you know, all the I's were dotted, the T's crossed and we, and we just executed the plan. But it wasn't really like that. It was more like an experiment. And yeah. um, it fits quite well with how I like to, run projects and, and do product development. You know, it was very much a case of, well, we've got this idea, how can we test it quickly? Um, how can we experiment and find out whether or not that resonates with people or not? And if not, let's, you know, lot, let's not quit our jobs and invest a lot of money in something and find that nobody wants it. Yeah. So the first real, real thing was, um, you know, this idea of ramping up teams quickly, um, using contractors, uh, bringing products and technology expertise and delivery expertise into that, not just uh, sourcing people, but you know, really managing the whole thing. Um, originally, I thought that was quite a niche idea. I thought, you know, most people, they'll have some permits, they'll use their own contractors, they've got other consultancies. So what is unique about this, um, really? But, but actually doing a bit of quick research by talking to um, colleagues in decision-making roles or ex-colleagues in decision-making roles, we found that there was a fair bit of dissatisfaction with all of the existing options. So if you go to recruit, you're typically just gonna get CVs and you need the capacity and expertise internally to actually do the selection and build the teams and all of the stuff that comes after recruitment, of course. Um, if you use a consultancy, they're, they're nearly all perm-based. Mm. And so therefore, um, they have some great quality people, but maybe they don't have the people with the skills that you need right now in your location for that type of project mm -hmm. just at this moment in time. Or if they do, they don't have maybe enough of them. Sure. And they might have some of them and not others. And therefore, 
that was always compromised when uh, building new project team working with partners. And so our unique idea was, was really to build a team that's bespoke on demand for the specific needs of the client and to do some kind of assessment first and make sure we understand what needs to happen in order for the client to achieve their goals and solve their problems. So we would provide the consulting first, let's say, we provide the leadership around that and we would provide um, not just people we have on our bench, but people that are specific to the problems we're trying to solve right now. So, um, so there, the, the way we went about that, so that was a sort of uniqueness idea was that's a little bit different to your typical consultancy mm -hmm. or recruiter. And so it's somewhere between the two, if you like. Yeah. Um, the way I went about that, we did write a deck, or I did write a deck, it was about um, six slides. <laughs> Nice. It's a brief. Most of them are pictures. They're <laughs> <laughs> my favourite um, one tonight, so it's all good. Pretty <laughs> lightweight, but all it did is it described this concept, what pain points it solves for a client over and above existing options. And I put that out with a price on it already to um, three or four ex colleagues in decision maker roles and set to test the idea and establish, I meant for it to be research really, to say, what do you think of that? Do you think it would work? Do you think you would buy it? Is it something you see value in? Sure. And two of them bought it. Two of them uh, took multiple teams from us immediately. Okay. Uh, cool. So at that stage, we were embryonic. It was just me and one other person. Um, we weren't expecting that response. Sure. Uh, so it was pretty. It was a nice problem to have, of course, but it was a pretty challenging <laughs> problem because we thought we were doing research, but actually we had business already. Sure. Um, so then we set about like building what we needed in terms of our own team sure. in order to deliver that service with uh, clients on you know already uh, waiting, yeah. and so it was a um, such a low risk approach. You know, it's test first rather than invest in three teams and find no one wants them. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, definitely <laughs> It's definitely the right way to do things, though. You know, you could have um, even, for example, take take the slide deck, right? You know, I think less is more with a lot of that stuff. You can go way too heavy on the information, and it can be quite heavy to read. And I've seen loads, obviously, over, um, over the years. Um, but it worked, right? And I guess it's the best kind of research that oh, people really do actually want this. And so now we need to uh, yeah, kind of get moving. I suppose. Right. And I think, um, and what we also learned, I think, you know, there's been such a long. Uh, not long, but such a big journey in terms of learning. Um, I think what we also learned is it's very, very difficult to execute, which might be why people don't do it. <laughs> so, I think, so I think it's like easy to put it on the slide, uh, like most things in life. You can, you know, ideas are to a penny, you have through two or three every day probably. Um, actually delivering them, executing is different, it's difficult. And so I don't think it's any secret to you know, to, to say how we did that, what well, the proposition is, because executing it was was very hard, required a lot of expertise, mm -hmm. a huge amount of energy, quite a large capital investment in terms of paying people before being paid and this kind of thing. So it's, um, the real learning has happened after people said yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, when yeah. you realise what it actually takes to then make that happen. Of course, definitely. And you had, I mean, were they running pretty much concurrently at the same time? Did you focus on one over the, the, the other project or did you get them both up as quickly as you could? Um, I think we, it's a good question. Looking back, I think we managed to phase it. Yeah. So it wasn't all at once. Otherwise, I think we couldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, I, had, uh, I had just offered a permanent job to Zane, who's now our CEO, who 
um, was one of the first people to join us and he um, he went on holiday just as those clients said yes. Uh, he wasn't even on our books yet. He was under notice about to join us. He went on holiday and suddenly we had multiple teams to build and uh, <laughs> to do it. So it was, all, it was all a bit challenging doing it that way around. Yeah. But of course what it did do is, um, you know, it was a huge way of mitigating risk, testing the proposition, uh, making sure the hypothesis and idea was, you know, actually had legs and uh, probably avoid a lot of heartache. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of hard effort, and um, but a lot of heartache goes into you know, investing or building something that no one wants. So mm, I think yeah. I still rather have it that way around where we're scrambling sure. <laughs> <laughs> than have people on the bench and nothing to do. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. That's that's it's completely true though. And I guess with a lot of kind of traditional consultancies, you know, you do hear fairly frequently, I guess, that there are great people just kind of sitting on the bench because they're not needed. So um, it's a good way to do it. And I think it, it obviously allows you to to scale at the pace that obviously the requirements are there, I guess. Um, and I, I guess, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, so going from obviously, I guess, putting feelers out more than anything, you know, looking to get maybe some you know, some kind of positive feedback or, you know, criticism where, where it's due, you've gone from there to actually thinking, oh, like, shit, we need, we've got some work to do, right? So we need to get going. How, yeah. how, how did that look like? Because I guess for, um, you know, even from our perspective, so we, so we made our first hire about six weeks ago, um, having never had to get a contract out or look at employment law or anything like that, yeah. it was pretty, pretty tricky, I guess. But did you, was that balance a little bit by yeah. That there were quite a few contractors in there and it wasn't as you know sort of permanent from a contract role or even a basic employment role no i mean we had some permanent people quite early on yeah. uh, i think that that wasn't too scary for us i think in my case um i'd already worked as a um as a director and a manager in large organizations for uh, longer than i care to remember <laughs> uh, for 20, over 25 years already so i knew i understand about you know, recruitment, about contracts, about employment law, about, uh, you know, so I'd been a um, board level director already, so I understand some things about business. Obviously, doing your own is always different to um, sitting on the board of a company and actually running your own company are still completely different. Yeah, um, but, but obviously, I did have that experience to go on. And so <clears throat> things like making our first permanent hires, some of the things we needed to put in place to be a, you know, decent sustainable business was um was a bit easier maybe having had that experience already than it might be if i was a, a younger entrepreneur <laughs> uh, i think if you start a business in your 40s you know you, you've got some significant advantages over younger entrepreneurs who um you know, have a lot of enthusiasm and energy and, and um, skill maybe but haven't necessarily had the same time to build up their experience so yeah, um, so that part was okay to be honest adam it was much more about just having the time yeah. to, to deliver on the idea. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, running your own business is 24 seven. Sure. Yeah. It's not literally, I mean, we, I do sleep, so it's not literally. <laughs> but every waking hour really has to be dedicated to it. I think it was definitely not. Um, so sometimes people, you know, when people see a, a company appear on the scene and, it's successful and amazing growth, but actually it's, it's not an overnight success, is it? It's something that has years behind it, yeah. probably. <clears throat> and the same here, it was, you know, it was years in the making. Um, and so um, 
then when you do actually take the plunge and do it, it really takes every hour you can give it. Yeah, of course. No, no, it really, really is. And I guess it's, um, it's, it's quite, it's quite sobering, I guess, in, in, in the, in the kind of early days. I mean, we've, we've only been going for about sort of three and a half, four months now, but there's always, in, in my opinion, there's always that, um, that kind of personal pressure that you have to put in yourself because, you know, I've got two young children, I've got a family, uh, the mortgage won't pay itself. <laughs> um, and I think it's, it's really, it can be really hard as well because you can obviously get so sucked into it, which you have to, but you know, you have to obviously try and try to find a balance, I guess, and then have a happy sort of life outside of work as well. Yeah. Um, how, how did you, I mean, have you sort of had those challenges where, you know, not maybe burnout, but you've just been so invested and you've struggled with that balance? Yeah, definitely. I, I laughed because I'm definitely the wrong person to ask. Right. Like, uh, I never managed to achieve that balance. Um, if I'm really honest, it's something I massively regret. You know, I can't say regret maybe because maybe I could look back and say, well, I'm, you know, it's amazing what has been achieved. But so regrets maybe too strong a word. But actually, balancing uh, a new business with family is very difficult. Mm. And in my case, I, I didn't start the business until uh, my children were already grown up. And so that's another advantage of starting a business later in your career. Um, that, that in theory, then you can dedicate more time to family and children and, and you know, your business idea will wait, you know. Yeah, of course. You're, when you're, not, not that everyone wants to wait, but it, it will wait if you want to dedicate more time to other things in the meantime. Yeah. In my case, I didn't really ever get that balance right. I think working in uh, quite busy director or executive level roles often there is a huge amount of pressure on you um, from a zillion stakeholders yeah, and um, it's not a nine-to-five job and so um, I say the balance was harder to strike when employed uh, in an executive role yeah. than, it, than it has been uh, with my own business because with my own business my children were grown up already but the um, but the difference, as I say, is with the business, really, it, it will take every hour you can give it. Yeah, if you can give it, and, and so it takes a huge amount of discipline to um, reinvent some time for the people you care about. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I, I suppose it's, um, it, it's all for you, it's your business, right? So the more time that you put into it, the more time you dedicate to it, 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 it's your business, it's your baby. So you want to yeah. give it all of the time. And I think, you know, I speak to a lot of people where, they're doing you know huge amounts of work and under so much pressure a lot of stress you know starting to suffer maybe at home etc um and it's sort of on some it's somebody else's kind of mission or, or journey yeah. yeah i think um you know not a lot of people will ever sort of found a business or, or start a company so it's uh but, but i think you know the fact that it's yours and it's your sort of baby and, and your journey gives a bit more satisfaction. i think that's the thing you don't you don't i think when it's yours you don't think of it as work yeah. If you're really into what you do, you're passionate about what you do, you believe in, in the vision and the philosophy and how it's going to help other people, then you, it didn't feel like work. Yeah. But that is the trap, isn't it? Because if it doesn't feel like work, you're really enjoying it, it'll take every hour you can give. Yeah, and the, just the advice is ring fence some time for the people you care about because business will take everything you can give it. Uh, exactly. and, um, and then some. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, of course. So, so when you were, um, you know, when you kind of started the business, I mean, did you have a core set of values that you really believed in that you practiced for, for throughout your career? I mean, what did you want to be known as? And I think, 
definitely over well 2020 as a whole you know through this this whole sort of pandemic that, that hopefully we're you know starting to see a bit of light at the end of the tunnel from now um i think people people really have taken stock of what's important to them. Um, and I've, I've said it on a, a few episodes now, but so many companies have handled communication, the way they've treated their staff really well, some quite poorly. There have been some, some pretty, pretty bad horror stories that we've heard, you know, within tech globally. Um, how, how have you sort of helped your business through, I guess, through what's been a pretty strange time? And has it changed from when you first started to, to build the team to where it is now? Um. I don't think it's changed. I think um, if I look back at my early management career, I was always into servant leadership. This idea that um, you're there to support the team as opposed to um, boss the team. And so I always had a very supportive kind of approach to management even early on. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's probably why I took the agile methods quite well and really enjoyed the nature of those, but also, I think what it meant is our culture at 101 Ways was always very people-oriented. It was always people-centric. It was always um, principle-led, mm-hmm. let's say, rather than commercially-led. And so, um, yeah, sometimes I made some commercially difficult decisions because the principles were more important. And uh, I think one <laughs> there was a quote uh, I remember someone telling me a few years ago that I've quoted a few times since, so that I love it. Is is the idea that a principle isn't really a principle until it costs you? Mm, yeah. Sure. And um, so it was always very principles driven, um, very people centric, very um, sort of servant leader uh, support supportive management style. And so our values often were really around treating people well. Mm-hmm. Treating people fairly, even when decisions are tough. Yeah. Um, looking after people, helping them to grow and develop, to to get what they want from their career, helping them to be like give the best they possibly can in their job, so that that benefits our clients and ultimately our reputation and therefore our, our work. You know, so that that it would create this kind of virtuous circle. If you if you treat people well, then it will lead to good delivery and good quality and happy customers to come back. Um, so that was always the kind of philosophy, I, I think, always through my career and particularly with 101 Ways to, to make sure that we instilled that um, philosophy into everybody who joined. Actually, that, that's probably the wrong way of saying it. I think probably it's not instilling it into people. It's more like selecting people who have those values at their heart already. Yeah, of course. Because uh, you can't really make someone feel like that. No, I like that. Already, <laughs> probably not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so our values were always people-centric. So we, so we have got some sort of values around, around quality, mm-hmm. around simplicity and keeping things simple, around collaboration and and making sure there's a sort of you know the team is more powerful than any individual kind of thing. And we, um, we sort of articulate the values that are very important to a lot of our people. Um, but I think always that it just comes back to this idea that it's people centric and principle led decision making. So it doesn't matter if the decision is £30 or £30,000 or £300,000. It's what's the principle? Yeah. Is the principle right? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, everyone might have a different idea of what right is, but that's half the challenge. But if the principles feel right, the, the commercials will take care of themselves. Sure. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. And I think. You know, um, people, 
you know, you, you could have a great experience with, with a business for two, three, five, ten years. But if you're then sort of started to be treated badly, you, you remember those bad experiences, I think. And, you know, I think looking back, you know, I'm sure in your career, you've probably had some good and some bad. And it's probably shaped the, the kind of person that you are now and the type of leader, I guess, that you wanted to be. But, yeah, I think it's, um, you know, communication it's one of the easiest things that, that we can do. It can be difficult at times, you know, delivering the right message or, you know, picking the right way to communicate things. But I think first and foremost, if you're a business that holds those values and you genuinely care about your people, that will always, you know, come back around. And I think it will, it will, it will help your people to stick by you, even through tough times, you know, like, like this, for example. I think that one of the challenges always, and I think back to earlier in my management career, not just in a hundred one ways, but you thinking about, um, you know, many difficult situations that you have to manage as a, as a leader. And um, I think in reality, some people, you will, if you make a hard decision, you have to make a tough decision. It's not what somebody wants. Um, you know, maybe it involves their job, maybe it involves their career path, whatever it might be. Um, or maybe the company's just not going in the direction that, that fits for them anymore. Whatever, whatever that difficulty, where it starts to not fit, that sort of difficult situation. Um, it's sort of in inevitable, isn't it, that someone's going to feel bad and they're going to, and they may not, they're not going to necessarily be happy. But I think if we can deal with that um, with honesty, with transparency, um, try to treat people fairly through that while it's resolved, whichever way that goes, and then in the end, they hopefully still look back and respect. They may not like the outcome, but hopefully they still look back and respect how it was handled. And so I think you have to acknowledge in business and management, it's not all plain sailing. Not everything clicks. Um, some people are really happy later want something else out of it and then it doesn't mm-hmm. align. You know, they're, they're brilliant people, amazing people were great for a while and then what's needed isn't what they want anymore. So I think there's always going to be... So, so I think being nice to your people, treating people well, it's not always possible to give everyone everything they want. Yeah. Um, sure. But I think if you give them uh, that sort of honesty, transparency, level of fairness and... Um, then usually they'll still respect um, how you treated them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, you, you mentioned obviously <clears throat> around just, just being transparent and honest, you know, there, it's pretty easy to do that if you want to do that, I guess. Um, and I mean, somebody told me a while back, it's like, there's never really a good time to deliver bad news. It's like, you know, no. you sit on things, you know, because it can just well up. But, you know, you are dealing ultimately with, with people's careers, people's lives, you know, everything yeah. that happens at work is a huge part of obviously their entire life, you know, in, in terms of the company they, they spend their time with. So, um, yeah, just having that kind of approach, I think people, people definitely respect the, you know, people who look after them. And, you know, even if they're, you know, we've seen a, a ton of redundancies from some great tech businesses over the last couple of months. Um, yeah. You know, the ones which I think have come out well, you know, like the Airbnbs, for example, with the open letter to, to the whole business on the decisions they've made. It's, it just gives people, okay, fine. Like it's a bad thing that's happened, but now I understand why it is. They're trying to help me moving forward. So, so yeah, no, some, 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 some great values. Oh, yeah, I focused on that just because obviously I know so many people in leadership roles are going through this right now. Yeah. Um, Obviously, even happy days, mm. demand is booming, yeah. revenue flying high, we're high, everyone's hiring, everyone's, you know, if everyone's got, a, not everyone, most people have a job and if they don't like it, they can easily get another one. It, it's kind of, I think leadership in those times is relatively easy, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's a lot of the problems that you deal with as a manager in those times are, you know, they're not really, 
they're kind of, I don't want to un undermine them, but they're, in the scheme of things, they're not big problems. They're just a bit stressful and niggly. But I think in these times, people are genuine, are dealing with very, very big, genuine challenges. And, um, and so it's just important to hang on to the, the, your principles, I think, and try to deal with things in the best way you can, given the situation that, that you might be in. Sure. And then the other thing I'm a great believer in is this idea that, and maybe it's sort of similar to what I was just saying, is this idea that you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond. Yeah. And so um, it's obviously true at an individual level, but it's also true at a business level, of course, where like Airbnb or numerous other businesses at the moment, they, they can't control what's happened. Nobody could have really foreseen what's happened. All they can do is control how they respond. Yeah. Um, and if they have to make hard decisions, they can still control how they go about that. Um, and it might be a small thing to hang on to, but if, if the one thing you can control is, is how you respond to it and, and try and do that um, as gracefully as possible. Yeah, no, of course. And I guess have your, have your partners, and you've obviously worked with you know, some of the leading sort of digital and technology brands you know, in, in the world you know, since, since inception. Um, have you been finding that a lot of your partners and clients are really looking for, for some support? Have they been coming to you for you know, not even necessarily sort of project work, but just advice on how, how to help them through as well? Yeah, actually, we've seen more demand for um, coaching, Mm -hmm. helping like support their own uh, leaders, whether that's a team level or higher. Yeah. Um, you've definitely seen a lot more. Um, it's not a lot of demand because people are not thinking about this so much at the moment. They're thinking more about how do they cope and survive through this period. But, but where there's demand it is it's mostly for coaching, mm -hmm. support, advice, assessment, Months, a little bit of leadership maybe um, to help them through this to help them adjust through this or to provide a little bit of extra um, leadership or support during while their staff get through this it's not really been a lot of project delivery yeah. uh, as in terms of new work coming in most people are not kicking off new projects right now they're just trying to get the ones they're working on through the door um, so yeah I think that's probably the, the reality of it is the more coaching because most uh, people in leadership roles are under a lot of pressure now. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, um, you know, just kind of from just basic conversations, you know, that it's obviously that theme, you know, so many people, even in, you know, big leadership roles, which, you know, traditionally would be a very stable kind of business, a stable environment. A lot of people don't really know what the next few months are going to look like. So um, how, how, do you, how do you think that will change? I mean, I guess we want to want to try and find some optimism. I guess somewhere. Yeah, from. yeah exactly. I've, I've obviously done quite a few of these, pretty much all through lockdown. So there's, I'm hoping these aren't completely doom and gloom. <laughs> but um, do you think any, you know, this is going to trigger, you know, obviously new ways of working. A lot of companies are probably going to have a lot more flexibility. I think, you know, maybe scale back offices. Do you think it will change how companies, you know, scale or the the, the, the pace at which they scale coming out as well? Um, when they're able to scale again, yeah, yeah I do um, massively. Uh, for starters, I think I don't believe everyone will work from home. Yeah, I do believe there are many people in a small flat in London with two kids, mm -hmm. no yeah. outdoor space. Yeah, who don't want to work from home. <laughs> uh, all the people that are like, "Hey, this is amazing! I didn't get, I didn't have to commute, and I didn't have to speak to any people at the office." There's, you know, it's just as many people who are like, "I really wish I had space." 
I wish I had a line where I could draw a line at the end of my day and go home to my family without still thinking it's got the workspace or, or they're just crowded because they're all trying to work at home and the kids are home from school as well. Sure. So I do think that when the kids go back to school, obviously that will get a bit easier, but a lot of people enjoy the interaction at work. A lot of people enjoy the, the um, demarcation of the work day. A lot of people enjoy the office facilities, let's say. Uh, and I think um, flexibility is the name of the game, isn't it now? I think people should be allowed more freedom to choose when they use the office space and when they use the home space. And office spaces then I think presumably will need less of it, mm -hmm. but also it might change the nature of it because we might want to create offices that are set up for collaboration mm -hmm. rather than offices that are set up to sit in rows answering emails because yeah, that doesn't make much sense to do in an office. Sure. So I think that bit obviously will change to some extent and I think it will be this, I think, I hope it will be this happy medium of we come in when you want to collaborate, the office is really set up for that. I get to enjoy time with my colleagues, you know, whiteboards and things face to face. Um, there's a lot more um, authenticity in the interaction, I think, when it's face to face still. <laughs> so I think that will happen. I think in terms of scaling, if we're willing to accept remote workers, and we've seen that remote workers can do many jobs, not all jobs, but many jobs, especially in our space, um, then why do I need to limit recruitment to the catchment area of my office? Yeah, of course. I don't. So now recruitment can be global. Sure. Um, you can recruit anywhere. I, so, so this talent shortage, which is a global problem, but is concentrated in certain areas of the world or, or maybe a bigger problem in, um, in areas with smaller populations, then this can be less of a problem because can recruit anywhere they can work remotely maybe they're traveling just for collaboration type events with their colleagues and sure. so i think that will help companies scale up quite well yeah yeah um but i do think it'll be quite a long while before we see revenues return uh, and scaling up yeah. might not be high on the agenda uh, for at least a year i would think no exactly and you know even you know very well-backed businesses you know big sort of vc funded companies um you know, they've had to be cautious, you know, it's not a case of, cool, we've got, you know, a couple of 10 million pound there, let's just spend it all. Let's, no, let's actually be careful and make sure we still have money to grow when the things do change. Yeah, I think there'll just be a little bit more uh, risk management right there because uh, we're not yet sure if there'll be a second wave and people who, if you're in a business vulnerable to the pandemic and, and have suffered during the first wave, if you then start throwing too much investment into things straight away then we might end up in a second wave and then you're gonna i think it's going to take some time for confidence to recover for most businesses to recover their revenue let alone growth and to then begin to think about some of their more innovative projects obviously those companies that do have investment have a huge advantage right now because there are a lot of talented people around yeah. looking for work there are a lot of people who who will work happily for lower rates there are uh, people available globally that you couldn't access when it was all face-to-face. Uh, -face. Yeah. I think there is an opportunity for the companies that have money to invest to um, to accelerate while others can't and to then get some kind of competitive advantage out of what they can do with their products while everybody else mm -hmm. is uh, struggling. So, yeah, if I guess what is terrible for, for many companies might be a golden opportunity for some. Yeah, no, for sure. And we're starting to see a lot more now. We've had quite a few conversations with um, 
with uh, companies from the States, you know, West Coast, East Coast, um, who are now, maybe they've got, you know, smallish sort of engineering hub in, say, Berlin, for example, which is where a lot of the American companies seem to pick, or, or perhaps Amsterdam. Um, <clears throat> you know, they're now able to look for, for those people, you know, people in the UK, people from Eastern Europe, Spain, Italy, you know, it's opened up a, like a global talent pool, basically. Yeah, so, it has, yeah. And also the exchange rate is helping because I think yeah. if uh, <laughs> the, the exchange rate of the pound any lower, I mean, yeah. you know, countries like the US will be offshoring to the UK mm. in order to access the London talent pool um, at reasonable rates because uh, the exchange rate in itself will help a, a company in another country to, um, yeah, it's just not going to look comparable with their own location. So, yeah, um, yeah, the weird thing, that's the weird thing, you know, so global talent pool, remote working, uh, exchange rate suffering, and therefore uh, some countries being able to outsource to the UK more effectively. Sure. I think there's a good chance we we'll see a lot of UK-based um, product development people working for um, for companies in the Far East or in uh, the US and doing that from their home near London. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if I had a crystal ball, I'd love to, to look at like 12, 12 months, two years, you know, down the line, because it obviously brings more competition into the market, of course, from companies that you weren't necessarily competing with before, you know, potentially, you know, big salaries, you know, it's, it's going to be, um, it's always interesting, I guess, on the talent acquisition side, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so, so obviously you guys are, you know, London based. Do you have an office in, um, in Holland or is it sort of project? Yeah, we use we use we work for our offices, so we uh, we don't have our own buildings. But we um, we have a, a small presence in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam. Yeah. We have a project running. We don't have an office, but we have a project running in Switzerland, in Zurich. Oh, yeah. um, the people they were flying in, flying out, but now they're just working remotely. So it doesn't really matter that the clients in Switzerland. I think for us, what that shows us is clients could be global too, right? It's not just this idea of global talent, but we're working for a company in Switzerland where our people are a mixture of London and Amsterdam based mm -hmm. and yet they're working for a Zurich based client and it makes little difference, you know, so suddenly we may have commercial uh, pressures on the, with the current market and the way demand is, but the whole globe is now our market. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think that's, that's, um, so at the moment just, uh, we have a, um, yeah, we have, we haven't been successful so far in Manchester. We were looking to, we actually have a, um, you know, we're looking to get pickup work in Manchester. We were really keen to expand in the north. I think we just started making a noise about that when the pandemic started to really hit. First, <laughs> yeah. uh, 35, then the pandemic. So we haven't really made progress there. Yeah. Um, a small presence in Amsterdam and a project in Switzerland and still ambitions to uh, do work for clients wherever they may be based. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, exactly as you mentioned, I mean, since, since we began, I think we've had, you know, projects in Paris, Berlin, Madrid, London, some stuff in New York, California. It's really been, and we, we didn't really expect that, but I think, you know, we just want to have... not anymore, does it? Yeah, well, that's exactly exactly the thing. I mean, it's it's obviously a bit harder with time zones on West Coast, especially, of course, but you, you spent, did you spend some time in California? I, a long time ago, I spent a year in California. I spent a couple of years in Sydney as well. Yeah, sure. I think the, you're right. The main barrier is time zone. Yeah. It's not technology has solved everything else, yeah, if you like. There's nothing quite like human interaction, but you can get by quite well with technology how it is now. But the time zone, uh, especially Australia, yeah. um, unless you shift your day, mm. <laughs> unless one side shifts their day, sure. uh, there's not even a 
there's not a good time of day to talk to each other. So I think they're very far away locations, maybe still the barrier, um, but, but nearer locations like east coast of the US and all of Europe, not a problem at all. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think what, what we're probably going to see a lot more companies doing just from kind of early feelers, I guess, that, that we've been putting out. I think a lot of companies will maybe have hubs in those time zones. So they may have a hub three or four hours that way, which, you know, if you can kind of join up the world, if you like, you know, through <laughs> time zones, it makes that a lot easier, I guess. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm sure you've had to take stock of, you know, some of the plans maybe you had and you've maybe had to you know, I guess just be quite realistic as, as a business in terms of where you'll be able to be. But have you got sort of a, a nuclear strategy for, for where you want to be in the next few years? Or is it more a case? <laughs> no, not really, not really, honestly. I mean, obviously, um, it's funny, isn't it? When you think about companies making three or five year plans, mm. we've never done that, thankfully. Um, what this has shown us is they're not worth anything, are they? You know, yeah. you, you write that plan and something drops on it and the, the second you start um, executing against that plan, something can completely blow it up. So um, there's probably some value in the planning, but not, but trying to predict the future, I think, is something I've learned is not easily done. One so I, would say the, um, I always use this phrase early on in a company called Codywonkling, the a phrase Codywomplian, it's a phrase that sort of means um, striving purposefully for an unknown destination. Nice. And I think we, um, <laughs> there was a time when we thought, let's stop Codywomplian, let's start planning like a proper business, let's grow up a bit, let's, you know, let's make our plans, let's enter this market, that market, let's expand our services. And in all honesty, um, when you try and force something, doesn't really work quite the same way yeah. as when it comes organically. You know, it, it, then you're thinking, okay, I've got no network there, no brand reputation there, and hire salespeople, we're gonna try and make ourselves known. It's very slow, uh, not much happens, it's very expensive, and yet something completely random pops up in Switzerland, and we do that very effectively and had no plans to go to Switzerland, you know? So yeah, I, I think uh, I'm not anti planning, but I think. Uh, Planning for the long run, yeah, not really likely to help you very much. Um, being too fixated on the current plan and not be willing to just adapt and change it when something, when an opportunity presents itself, is not always negative, of course, or when something negative happens, you know. So no, we don't really have. Um, we're not working to a master plan. We are more saying let's keep our principles, let's keep the quality up, let's keep the. Um, value of the service good let's make sure our clients are happy or our consultants are happy let's support all of that in the right way and that will lead i'm sure to good things yeah. um we choose to be active in some countries or some cities a little bit more in terms of the community mm -hmm. that could be our way of making sure that in certain places we are heard about and people understand what we do mm -hmm. um but no, we're not. We're not like opening an office in a city every six months and you know, pushing a uh, like a hard rollout or something like that. We're more just yeah. Let's just try and keep the quality up. Let's try and keep the reputation good. Let's uh, see where that takes us. Yeah, definitely. And I think as you as you mentioned as well, you know, you know, without ever wanting or not not wanting to, but um, never focusing on Switzerland, for example, you know, 
do a great job for those guys, you know, your reputation starts to build before you know it, you know, you could have, you know, pretty good profits, yeah. And um, yeah, it's quite likely, it's, it's all for, suddenly feels quite likely. Then we had a few other opportunities from companies in, in Zurich and that was not on the plan. Um, whereas another city that was on the plan that we invested quite a lot of money into hasn't really worked out. So I think sometimes you have to just be a very adaptive, um, as long as it sits with your, you're right with your principles and, and the way you want to go about things, be ready to adapt and mm. kind of follow demand a little bit and yeah, of course. see where it takes you. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you have to have a rough plan. You know, you can't just fire from the hip and see what happens, I suppose. No, we, had a, we had a plan of what service we want to deliver and how we would go about it. But where we do that is, is less, you know, important. Um, yeah. yeah, it's not, it's not zero plan. Yeah. But it's not a five-year plan and it's not uh, sort of fixed locations or set numbers. Um, I'm not really keen on forecasting revenue, for example, in terms of financial plans and things like that. I, I think you've got to plan your, your costs. You've got to have an idea, of course. You've got to try and understand what it's going to take to sustain the business. But to try and predict exactly what your revenue will be every month for the next three years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, How do you do that? For sure. And I've had... Um, I've, I've had a position where that was literally the case and you're working towards something that you're predicting you'd like to maybe be at in like three years time, which it's good to think, right, I'd love to be here, right? Let's work towards that. But when you strip that down to my plan next month, if it doesn't go perfectly to plan, that sets me back by a month for 2022, 2023. You can just lose your focus, I think. And you can really, you know, the, the teams, people, People leave positions, you know, people want to try something new, they explore something else. That one loss, if that sets your entire plan back, you're then scrambling to rehire and to focus. So I think, um, yeah, organic growth, I guess, and just, you know, enjoying yeah. it as you go, because it, it can take the enjoyment out of it, I think, as well. It definitely can. I think there's nothing wrong with having a vision, of course. Yeah, yeah, we yeah have a vision sure. that we're going to get to here, but we, what we don't do is say, oh, yeah, in six months' time, we'll hit this number, and nine months, we'll hit this number, and because... Yeah doesn't really work like that, does it? Yeah, clients exactly. come, clients go, surprises happen. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I think the problem I see with it is anything, um, anything other than that is really, a, it's a made up number. Mm. No one knows if it can happen. Sure. Uh, yeah. how, many, how many investment bets are you going to make on a, a made up number? I think you, um, it doesn't yeah. feel like it's value <laughs> to me. So, so no, we don't really plan in that way. Um, but obviously we do think about where our revenue is at, what kind of cost it's going to take to do something and whether it feels proportional and sustainable. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, we, which are, you know, the, the, the key things, I guess. And, uh, you know, if you're always chasing something, which, you know, you, it can always set you up, I guess, for disappointment, even though you actually really love what you're doing, I suppose, as well. And, yeah, it can. Uh, it can yeah, you know, when you, I think it, it really can. You can be like, I wanted to be 200 people by this date and now I failed. Yeah, but I'm, but I'm actually 100 people when I only thought it'd be 50, you know. So yeah, exactly. Like I failed. That's exactly it's, yeah. That's exactly yeah. yeah and it's, it doesn't set you up for the right. If we're going to make decisions based on principles as well, I think it tends to pull you away from that. It tends to pull you into, okay, it's not in line with my principles, but I need the number. Yeah, yeah, of course. And now you make decisions that affect the culture yeah, and can yeah. do long-term damage. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, you, your people have to enjoy, you know, the, working with you. You have to be on that kind of shared mission. You know, if you're purely looking at a number or a headcount figure, and I think that's where a lot of businesses start to become 
you know, they start to look at people as a transaction, as a figure, you know, and that's when I think a lot of people lose that faith, I guess, sometimes in a business because you feel like every decision, it's just to please the board and it's just to hit a target or something like that. Um, I mean, have you, have you worked in businesses like that? You know, where that is. Yeah, of course. Yeah. One of the yeah best. Most of the businesses I worked in were like, that. sure. <laughs> and that's why I was really determined not to run my business like that. Yeah. And maybe I'm being naive, you know, as we get bigger, I'll probably find that I'll find out why they do that. And I'll learn painfully. <laughs> um, but it's an aspect of the companies I worked for that I didn't enjoy mm. and that I thought damaged the culture. And I thought was uh, rarely realistic anyway, because you get into the games with numbers then, don't you? As I put it as low as possible because then I'll hit my bonus. And so then everyone has to squash their costs down because they put a low number in and also, and then you find you you overachieve because it was always low-balled and then you've got loads of money to spend in two months at the end of the year and you've got to magic up a project it's, exactly. and it's like what are we doing how does this make any sense <laughs> yeah no, I, I worked with unfortunately work with these annual budgets that are very rigid and therefore you end up with all of those games or all the silly uh difficult we're well, saying silly difficult decisions because you're trying to play to a number that you made up 18 months ago. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, we try not to do that. We, we tried to you know, make our decisions based on the right principles and see where that takes, takes us. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, I suppose looking at how, you know, my, my sort of, uh, my outlook, I guess, on, you know, leadership, you know, what I, I guess what I kind of want to be known for, I guess, as, as a person and the type of company we want to have, it's probably very different now to when I first got into the industry at sort of 19 or 20. I mean, have, have there been any sort of key moments that you sort of look back on that you probably didn't realise were so influential, but have really helped to shape you now? And just whilst you think about that, I'm going to slide two foot down on my desk because my laptop is just drained battery. So I'm just sliding very slightly over here. <laughs> no problem. Um, wow, what a tough question. Yeah. I don't, um, you know, I would there are probably so many. Um, I would probably look at it like, the way I think I would describe that is I, I feel like the best thing we can do for ourselves is to think of ourselves as, um, a work in progress and still after however many years a work in progress and so if every day we learn something new mm. and we try to be reflective and we think about how that affects what we're going to do next time differently um, then every day maybe we can get a little bit better a little bit improved a little bit more wise and over the course of many days, weeks, months, years, then we become better, let's say, or more knowledgeable. And so I think it's more a case of um, just trying to think of yourself as a, as a work in progress, as a continuous learner. Sure. And therefore every moment, but you mentioned key moments, but like every day, almost every day, there's a moment where you think, oh wow, I wouldn't have done that if I knew that then. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, and so all of these, hopefully, if you're a reflective, learning-oriented person, all of these are going in and you're becoming like, better for the next time. Sure. Uh, I think, um, I don't know, being principles-led is the, is the, I can't identify the moment when I thought this is what I'm about. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is how I identify myself. But... It's probably just evolved over a long time. Yeah. 
but being uh, being principal led and um, a continuous learner, mm. recognizing I still know so little sure. compared to what I need to know. There's um, always, there's always but, something new to learn or <laughs> new methods. Yeah, and, yeah, and I, I'm sure most people have read about marginal gains and mm -hmm. stuff like that. You can make a tiny percentage improvement every day. Yeah. Um, however tiny it is, you know, the cumulative effect of that over time is, is exponential. And so I just think rather than identifying as a, I don't know, if you identify as something like a software developer or a successful entrepreneur or a, um, or award winning, whatever, mm -hmm. that identity is, is a, it's a risk that you're going to have real problems with that. You know, when that's no longer the case, when you're no longer a successful entrepreneur because a pandemic happened, Sure. And that then threatens your whole identity. Mm. But I think if you can be, actually, I'm, my, my identity is about learning. Yeah. I'm not there yet. In other words, it's not a successful <laughs> entrepreneur. It's I'm a learner. And what I learn through this entrepreneurial journey will, if it fails, will help me in the next one. Um, then you can't really do yourself much harm because every mistake, yeah. <laughs> every failure, every trip every fall is another chance to learn something new and, and do better next time so i think that's a it's probably the key philosophy is yeah. um you're never there you know you know probably nowhere near yeah of course and i think uh, <laughs> you know i've definitely i've definitely worked with and, and for people you know peer level um you know direct designers etc where they so many people i think in every industry try and just exude that confidence where they know everything because they feel like they have to. And I think it can be, it can be quite eye-opening, I guess, you know, if I look back now, you know, I had, I mean, generally in, in talent and recruitment, you get zero management training. You get, you literally start to hire because you've maybe done quite well and you've had yeah. years and, and you've started to be a good person within that business, but nobody really teaches you how to manage. It's just something that you're kind of expected to do and get it right. And if, if I look back now, I mean, the main sort of principle when I really started to build a team, I wanted to be essentially the opposite of the first manager I had, who was just a really, really poor manager, unfortunately. Really, really not. That's a great learning experience, isn't it? When you see a bad one, you know you don't want to be that one. Exactly, exactly that. And I think looking at it now, I, I, was, really, I was probably more conscious of probably... <sighs> probably being liked, I guess, more, more than, you know, necessarily wanting to be the perfect manager because I just had, you know, th this specific person had bad relationships with a lot of people. And I was so conscious of not being like that. I probably focused on maybe some of the wrong things that looking back now, I would definitely change. Um, yeah. Do you remember feeling that, you know, the yeah, first yeah. big role that you stepped into your life? Yeah, I think for a long time in the sort of first management roles for a long time, it feels like you want to be popular. Mm. you want yeah. to be liked you want to be because you confuse that with being respected sure. and it's not the same exactly and, so, true, yeah. and so it's difficult because you i think what you learn quite early on or certainly i did is you know i want to be popular therefore i'm seen as a good manager yeah and therefore i'm doing everything i can to please my team mm -hmm. but then things happen out of my control where i just can't sure and now not only does that disappoint my team but it also, it comes back to the thing I was just saying about identity. If I identify as a nice manager, a good manager, someone my people love, then actually somebody else does something out of my control or something happens out of my control that affects that and, I, and it offends my values. Mm. So I start to feel stress and pressure and <laughs> I feel like I'm failing. 
when sure. actually I didn't make the pandemic. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't the one who had that bad behaviour that affected my team. And so I think you um, you have to actually um, probably distance yourself a little bit from just trying to be popular. Yeah. To uh, being um, respected by my team because I protect them from all that yeah. rubbish, um, yeah. rather than uh, just being nice or being their friend or um, because so many things are going to happen out of your control. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're going to mean this thing happened out of your control and now you have to make a decision the team won't like. Sure. And now that challenges your very identity that you yeah. formed for yourself. Of course. And, the, and then that decision, either you won't make it, mm -hmm. business will suffer, yeah. or you will make it, but you won't sleep. Sure. And, and, and because it's not you. And I think it's very, very important to remember there are going to be many things that happen outside of your control that affect your team and you're going to be the one that has to deal with that. Mm. And so try and create a relationship where you will do everything you can to support them, look after them, but you are, um, but you can't make decisions just to be popular. No, of course. It will, it will burn you later. For sure. And I think it's, I think that's a really common mistake that I think so many new managers and new leaders probably make. Um, and, you know, once you, you know, it's not to kind of put too much emphasis on getting it perfectly from day one, but, you know, if you start to live by a set of rules, coming into a new business, taking on a new team, if that's not really you and you start to change that, it's pretty hard to change something you've implemented or the perception, I guess, that has been given of you. Um, how just to, you know, with, with 101 Ways and how you sort of land into projects, obviously there are a number of different stakeholders, you know, there are other software engineering teams, obviously you have to collaborate with products, DevOps, et cetera. How, how, do you, how do you approach that? Obviously you do workshops and analysis before, but how do you land? Um, you know, we do, um, I won't say analysis before, sometimes we do an assessment yeah, yeah. We, um, we start a lot of engagements with an assessment. Mm -hmm. I say assessment, sometimes it's more like a discovery. We're not really assessing someone. Sure. Bit, we're not assessing the level yeah. of the people or something. We're looking at what the situation is. Mm -hmm. um, what are their goals? What are they trying to achieve? What's in place? How are they operating? What are their challenges? What kind of problems are they facing? What are the things that are going to prevent them from getting to their goals? How would we do things differently mm -hmm. in order to unblock those things? reduce the problems, move faster towards their goals and achieve the outcomes they're looking for. So often we start with something like that. And sometimes we just do that as a consulting piece of work. Okay. It's immensely valuable for the short amount of time it takes. So it's quite good value. Yeah. And then um, some clients saying like, that's fine. Thanks for that. We can do that. Mm. And they make the changes themselves and it's all, uh, yeah, and it helps them a fair bit and, it, and we don't need to get involved. Yeah. Um, some clients, however, then say, you know, that's great, but we have no idea how to do that. <laughs> sure. You know, we might just mess it up. We haven't got the capacity or the capability or both. And so we'll come and, and help with it. So the first thing about your point is we've then already started with a huge amount of context. Mm, of course. Um, so when it comes to landing, we're quite sensitive then to the problems they're facing. Mm -hmm. We've already met some of the people quite a few other people probably, we can think about how we build our teams in order to support those objectives and solve those problems in a way that fits mm -hmm. specifically with the client and the problems they're having and the teams and how they're currently set up because we've done that piece of work first. 
Sure. So we're not just dropping bodies in and yeah. hoping they fit, you know. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, so that's the first thing. And then in terms of landing, we tried to be very collaborative, mm -hmm. very pragmatic, lots of workshops, try to um, make sure that we get alignment because the biggest barrier to getting anything done is lack of alignment. Mm. And it, it doesn't matter how many people you've got, it only takes like one or two vocal people to not be aligned and the whole thing is difficult. Sure, um, sure. I always think of it like a car that's kind of kangarooing down the street and you're not really getting anywhere because things aren't aligned, you know. I think once you can get alignment, then people can start traveling more quickly, mm. uh, deliver faster, deliver better quality. And so always we're trying to do things that increase the alignment early on. Um, and then we support the engagements all the way through. Like we're speaking to our people, to the clients, some of the clients, people who are involved in the same projects where... Um, looking for what are the problems they're having how can we help them solve them yeah so we're not just kind of again dropping them in hoping they do well but sure. trying to help shape things on an ongoing basis so that uh, they can continue delivering well yeah and then we hope that they'll be more successful than if we just dropped in individuals and, mm. and that will do a better job and, and be asked back so that's pretty much how we do it it's a, it, what it means is very high levels of collaboration mm. um, Probably way too much talking for most engineers. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then, you know, most engineers would also recognize how painful it is when those alignments aren't there and yeah. it's problematic to get anything done. Yeah. Then they don't want to come to the meeting to talk about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's trying to get lots of collaboration done, but at the same time, trying to respect uh, and protect people's time a bit so that they don't feel like they're in meetings all the time and can't deliver because of all the questions we're asking. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's always going to be, you know, you'd love to have the perfectly uh, sort of receptible uh, stakeholders every time. I'm sure there are a few which maybe maybe don't agree or they, you know, there has to be some kind of, as you said, that alignment and maybe a bit of persuasion just around, let's see how it works. But I mean, you'd like to think that every software engineer, every project manager, scrum master, whatever it is, you want a smooth process and you want to be able to work in a productive way to deliver great software ultimately. So I think, um, and I think that's where, you know, companies like 101 Ways, for example, where you kind of set yourselves apart. You know, there are a lot of, a lot of companies that we've all probably heard of that, you know, just try and ram as many people into a project as, as possible just to try and, uh, you know, generate more revenue. But if you're really sort of careful about the people that, that you select, you know, having a really high standard for, you know, for value, for quality, and people are genuinely there for the right reasons, then, there shouldn't be too much for for your. They, they, you're right. When you when you bring, when we bring people like that, they are um, very intolerant of problems. They want to be able to deliver, and they want to deliver quickly. They want to deliver quality. Mm. Um, but the environments that we're going into are often not like that. And mm. um, through no fault of the client, you know, they've got thirty years of history and some old legacy staff, and mm. it's a big company with many versions of the platform, some really old technology, no tests, no continuous delivery, mm. maybe they're not always in the cloud yet. And so a lot of the things that we want to do, just great working practice that modern software engineers all want and expect, they're just not there. Sure. And so and people don't like change, of course. So people all want that. But it's much more comfortable to sit with your headphones on and just write some code than to try and embrace all this change because it requires such a lot of energy, yeah. such a lot of determination, mm -hmm. um, so many obstacles to overcome, challenges in sure. people resisting, etc. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. So I think a lot of people think 
you know, oh, sorry, I just put my headphones on and write some code mm-hmm. and live with the current state, which is, you know, which is usually a state that nobody is happy with. So, um, so yeah, we have to bring people who have that determination mm. and that resilience, um, but also the pragmatism to do the, you know, to, to do that incrementally because you can't change that stuff overnight. Uh, it's not going to happen. And to bring everybody involved on that journey, you know, to make sure that people don't feel like that's being done to them, that it's something we're all doing together to make the place better. Yeah, of course. So yeah, not, not a complete piece of cake all of this uh, digital consulting work, is it? No, no, <laughs> it's it's moving parts. <laughs> no, it's, we, yeah, we didn't pick an easy one. It'd be much easier. <laughs> Many businesses are much easier. Sure. Uh, it's, it's challenging, it's complicated, um, but it's very rewarding um, because yeah. Obviously, tech now is at the center of the universe for every company, really, and uh, never more so than after the pandemic. And so it's incredibly rewarding when you deliver great digital products to deliver better or help companies get better at their capability in delivering products. It's massively rewarding. And when you see, uh, you know, the kind of outcomes they're looking for being delivered and users growing a number of users on the system growing and yeah. happy it's like it's very very rewarding but but i think day to day probably just feels like a slog just in the grind <laughs> yeah you know i think this is that incremental um or like this you know fraction of a percent improvement a day it's like you push and push and push and it seems like there's hardly any change and then a year later you look back and you go wow yeah, yeah. Didn't even realize we were moving this boulder. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's so heavy. Um, you look back yeah. and you go, wow, you know, and that's it's incredibly rewarding, but you need a certain amount of tenacity, determination, patience, resilience to, to do um, transformation work. Mm-hmm. And obviously, product development is sometimes equally challenging as transformation work. So when you put the two together, um, it can feel a bit like that. Um, yeah. We always take great pride when we look back. You look back and see how far, uh, how far we came. Yeah, exactly. And it's only, as you said, it's only when you actually stop in time and, and look back where you think, "Cool, we've actually done wow. <laughs> awesome there." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's cool. I appreciate we're kind of sort of getting towards roughly kind of the end of time. I could I could chat to you for days on end, although you have a pretty successful business to run, right? So, um, but I mean, just kind of on on the softer side, you know, kind of away from work. I mean. Yeah. You know, what, what kind of stuff do, do you like to do, which, you know, sort of takes your mind maybe off of tech or are you fully in the business, you know, hobby? Because you're, you're um, I just realized on LinkedIn before we spoke, but you've, you've done your coaching badges as well. I have, yeah, football, yeah, football yeah, coaching. Yeah, with the FA, sorry, with the FA, yeah, <laughs> yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm, um, yeah, sadly, I'm an Arsenal fan, which, um, okay, interesting. Tell you're a first fan, and if I'd known, I'd have never done this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm open, I'm open. You're a good guy. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, being an Arsenal fan is pretty depressing at the moment, but I enjoy football Likewise, a lot. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I, I, I enjoy football. I don't play anymore, but I coach. Um, I manage a, I manage the Ballon B team next uh, season, which is exciting. I'm partway through my... I say partway through, you're always partway through, of course, but I'm partway through my journey with the coaching badges. Mm-hmm. Um, and my two young grandchildren live with me, so they're one and three. That keeps me pretty busy. I so I, um, <laughs> yeah, I have plenty to do, that's for sure. Um, sure. Football is my escape, if yeah. that's what you mean. 
Yeah, of course. And I've, I mean, it's obviously back at the moment, but it's not the same without fans, is it? It's I'm nothing sure. like it, is it? It's very strange. Yeah. Um, I'm still happy it's back. Um, mm. Although, you know, I was wishing for it to be back. I was so excited when it was back. And then the first couple of Arsenal games were so depressing, and I was wishing it was off again. <laughs> Sure. I think the, the, one, the one positive I've taken from how poor Spurs have been is that David Luiz has got a new contract. So that was, uh, that was interesting. Yeah, and um, Wow. Yeah, you just think... I think when you have coaching badges in your own business, you look at something that's going on in football and you just think, mm -hmm. I wish I had a chance to do that. Yeah, of course. Uh, you wouldn't make the same decisions you think, but then what we don't know, and it's the same with yeah. businesses, we don't know their constraints, do we? Sure. And so... You know, um, in football or business, it's really easy to say, you should have done this, you should have done that, you should have done the other thing. But given the same constraints, yeah. maybe they just can't and we couldn't either. You know, So I think um, something important as well, outside of football, football is, it makes me very passionate, but in, in business or, in, or when you look at decisions people make, whether it's managers or whoever, we don't know what constraints they have, what battles they're having. We're all having our own battles, aren't we, privately? Everyone has one. and. Um, so just important always not to just go, you should have done this, you should have done that, but to think, actually, I know nothing of the constraints that person's facing, the battles they're having, that's just sure. a bit more tolerant. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's about having that empathy, I guess. Um, yeah, except in football, where we can just moan constantly about a team because it is... Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly, and I, I really, really value your uh, your ability to try and look for a reason why he did get an extension, which is great. Um, <laughs> no, I'm joking. It doesn't make much sense, does it, from the uh, outside? It's crazy, but no, hopefully uh, things get a bit back to normal next year. I mean, they're talking about even maybe not having uh, fans for, for the start of next season, which would be a, a huge shame, I guess. Um, but yeah, but you know, hopefully, you know, football coming back for me, I'm a, I'm a big football fan. Pretty much anything with the ball, to be honest with you, rugby, cricket, basketball. I'll, I'll watch anything through this period just to, to get the sport back in my life. So it's nice to see that. Even if it's not the same, it feels like normality, I guess. It's, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's maybe at least a, a sign that we're taking steps towards yep. uh, the return of normal life. One yep. step at a time, maybe, but it's one step. But yeah, it's good. It is good escapism for all the people who like football or other sport to yeah. just put the TV on, get exactly. frustrated for an hour and a half, and then remember what else you had to think about after. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. No, that, that's exactly it. Well, look, we'll, we'll see. Um, we'll see how the transfer window goes, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll have a wager with you, Spurs over Arsenal uh, next season. <laughs> we'll see. We'll put a lunch on it. <laughs> but no, it's going to be interesting. But but look, Kelly, I think. Um, as I said, look, I'd, I'd love to catch up with you again at some point, just to, you know, three, four months, maybe see how things are going for you. Hopefully we're going to be in a bit more of a normal place then. But, um, but yeah, I mean, as I said at the, at the beginning, you know, so many people have reached out to say they're really eager to, to sort of hear, hear the words of wisdom from, uh, from <laughs> yourself. And I think just about your journey as well, because I, I think you've definitely been quite humble, I think, at the beginning. You guys have a great name, great reputation. Um, and uh, and it, it's, great to, it's great to hear more. I'm sure there are so many more interesting stories that we just don't have time for. But, yeah, uh, I think the, the only wisdom I can really impart, because I'm still, I'm sure, early in my journey, is um, is the idea that you're a continuous learning. You know, just sure. take every mistake and every mm -hmm. failure as a chance to learn, and and then you can't go too far wrong. You know. 
Yeah, perfect. Well, look, great, great parting words. And um, I mean, you know, if people sort of, you know, have questions or if people are interested in obviously finding a bit more about how you guys work, you know, if they have sort of coming needs and they're starting to look at their pipeline, are you happy for people to reach out to you, LinkedIn? Um, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, perfect stuff. I'm always on LinkedIn, and so uh, I think people will be able to find me. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, um, look, Kelly, thanks for your time. It's, it's been great having you. Can't wait to get this one out. And uh, yeah, th thanks for thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks. Lovely. Cheers, Kelly. Cheers.